The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. As we turn our attention now to God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Most of the time here at Hilton Head Pres, we preach through books of the Bible, but sometimes we make an exception. Um, Advent, we did a a series about the gifts that Christ brings. We're going to start next week with a series on the mission, the vision, the values of our church. Who is Hilton Head Presbyterian Church? What are we trying to do in the new year? But normally, we preach through books of the Bible. Since I've been here, we did the Psalms of Ascents. We've done the Gospel of Mark, we did Exodus recently, and now we're halfway through our series on Romans, and there are several reasons why we do this. Um, First of all, it forces us to preach on passages and themes that we might not come to otherwise, passages and themes that can be pretty difficult, like we're about to come to Romans 9 through 11. They're not agreed upon passages of Scripture. They're controversial, and um, they're difficult. But because we're in Romans, and because Romans 9 through 11 is in Romans, we're going to preach on Romans 9 through 11. The same thing with the last half of Exodus. I mean, what pastor gets up on Monday morning and says, I think this week what my people really need to hear and understand is the color scheme of the tabernacle and the materials of the garments that the priests wear. I think that'll really grip their hearts. That'll really call them to holiness. It should... And it has something to say to us, but we don't naturally think that way. And so preaching through books of the Bible forces us to deal with passages that we might otherwise ignore. It also keeps us off of our theological hobby horses. I mean, we all have things that we're passionate about, things that we love to talk about. Uh, You might have gotten something along that theme for Christmas, whether it's a card game that you're really excited about, maybe you really geek out about Marvel movies. I don't know what it is. But everybody has something that you're passionate about that if given the opportunity, you will talk and talk and talk until people are bored to tears. The good thing is that most of you don't have a platform from which regularly to talk about those things. Preachers do. Every week we get to stand up and talk about something. But we all have things that we're passionate about. Matt is passionate about worship. Tim, about apologetics. Bill, about grace motivated obedience. Me, about an understanding of the faith that goes not just deep in the Bible, but deep into history. But can you imagine if you heard about that same thing every single week? You'd either stop coming or stop paying attention once someone got up here to preach. So we preach through books of the Bible because it keeps us from preaching about the things that we are most interested in. Maybe the biggest benefit of this, though, I discovered this week It keeps us from having to to decide what to preach on on any given week. Bill's out of town, and he's got other pastors on staff now, so he's like, hey, new guy, you get to preach. It's not quite the Advent series. It's not quite the Vision and Value series. So you pick whatever you want to preach on. That's a death sentence for a pastor. I mean, look at how big this book is. How am I supposed to pick just one thing to preach on? The benefit of preaching through books in the Bible is, did we just preach on Romans 6? Okay, this week we'll do Romans 7. So this week I really had to agonize over what on earth am I going to preach on? What, What can I bring before us at the start of this new year? And I started thinking about where we've been, the Advent series, Christ's birth, and where we're going. 
Who is Hilton Head Presbyterian Church? What is the church and the birth of the church? And what comes between those two things? The public ministry of Jesus, his ministry, the cross. But that doesn't help much because we have four whole books of the Bible that are about his public ministry and the cross. But then, then I realized it's all okay. Donald Trump is coming to town. Donald Trump is coming to town, and regardless of what I think about him, it got me started thinking about political campaigns, about candidacy, and especially about announcing your candidacy. You want that first speech, that, hey, I'm really running for office, to encapsulate your whole campaign. You want it to be indicative of of what you believe, what you're passionate about. You want the themes of that speech to be repeated over and over and over during your candidacy. It's like a job interview or a first date. You want to make a good first impression. So if we want to get Jesus' public ministry in a nutshell, if we want to understand what he's about, we should look at this opening statement, his, his announcing his candidacy, heralding his arrival. So that, that helps narrow it down, but still we have three of these. In Matthew, it comes right after the temptation. He, he faces Satan in the desert and he comes out and he preaches a sermon that's three chapters long. So I decided not to preach on that one. In Mark, he comes out of being tempted by Satan, comes out of the wilderness and says, repent and believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. We preached on that last year, so I said, okay, we'll leave that one aside, which leaves us with Luke. And after the temptation in Luke, Jesus comes out, and the first encounter that Luke gives us, gives us this opening statement, this this campaign announcement of Jesus Christ. It gives us, in a nutshell, what he's about. So look and read with me. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their tower was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for the truth that it reveals to us about you, about Christ. We pray, Father, that as we look at your word this morning, as we dive into this passage, that you would give us eyes to see, you would give us ears to hear the good news that Christ brings, the blessing that he is to us, that he offers us. Father, help us to see him, who he is, what he's about in this passage this morning. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So again, we have here from Jesus his opening statement. He's just defeated Satan, and he's coming and announcing his Messiahhood. And what do we learn about Jesus? Who is this Jesus that Luke presents us with? The first thing about Jesus that we learn is that he is an expected Savior. I want to make sure we get the context of this passage. Jesus is kind of on vacation. I mean, he's going back to his hometown. He doesn't live in Nazareth, but that's where he grew up. So he's going back, you know, to see his old high school and visit all, you know, the malt shop that he used to hang out at, all that kind of stuff. And on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, as is his custom, he goes to worship. He goes to the synagogue. Now, a quick aside here. Jesus is the only person in the world who has an excuse not to go to church. Jesus Christ does not need to be in church. But here, the Lord of the universe's custom is to go to worship. Even when he's on vacation, even when he's visiting his family, he goes to worship. What's your excuse this year? I urge you, resolve this year to be in the house of God with his people. Whether it's a hard week, whether it's a great week, whether you're exhausted Whether you feel like worshiping or you don't, this is the best place for you to be on Sunday morning. If you're traveling and visiting family or friends, what a great witness to those who don't believe when you take time out of your vacation to gather with the people of God. That's a quick aside. That's all I'm going to say about that. So Jesus is going to the synagogue, not the temple. That's in Jerusalem, but he's in Nazareth. And the synagogue basically is a Jewish first century church. When they would come and gather, they would sing songs together, they'd hear scripture read, they'd hear scripture explained and applied to them. Sounds like what we do here every Sunday morning. It's basically Jewish church. So Jesus is there, and as the visiting teacher, he's invited to stand up and preach. I grew up in the Mennonite church, which some of you may know something about. If you don't know about the Mennonite church, it's basically like the PCA and that it's a really big extended family that also maybe is a little bit inbred. Um, There are just weird connections all over the place. I mean, I went to school with Johnny and Jeannie's daughter, and Jonathan Mullen, one of his childhood friends, was my college roommate. Um, Abby Wedgworth was in a band in college with my brother. There are all these really weird connections in the PCA, and the Mennonite church is no different. So my grandfather, who's a pastor in the Mennonite church, told me that, when he was a pastor and they would travel on vacation, he never went anywhere without some sermon notes in his Bible because he knew that he's going to go to church on Sunday and somebody there is going to know or have heard of Raymond Shank and ask him, Raymond, would you give us the message this morning? Probably not with any warning. It'd be like me walking up here after the offering, seeing that there's a random PCA minister in the room and saying, do you want to come preach this morning? That's what happens with Jesus. He's there, he's the visiting teacher, and so they invite him 
to read and to preach. And he opens the Bible to Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads. He reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, this expected Savior, brings expected blessings. What are these blessings? Let's dive into a few of them. First, to proclaim good news to the poor. This is the heart of Jesus' ministry, to preach the gospel. In Mark, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. In Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Jesus comes to those who are spiritually poor, to those who despair of their own righteousness and comforts them with the gospel. When it says he proclaims good news to the poor, basically, linguistically, he's saying Jesus preaches the gospel to the poor. But he also proclaims liberty to the captive to the captives. He preaches liberty to the captives. That word liberty can also be pardon or forgiveness. And if you're a captive, if you're in prison, that's exactly what you need. You need a pardon. You need forgiveness if you're going to be set free. We see Jesus doing this literally in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, to those who are captive, he brings freedom. To those captive to demons, he casts them out. To those captive to paralysis, he heals them. To John the Baptist, who's literally captive in prison, he announces the good news of the gospel. But more than that, he does this spiritually. I mean, think about the paralytic in the story. He's a man, and he can't move. He can't feed himself. And basically, he's at the mercy of whoever is feeling generous and helpful that day. But some of his friends hear that Jesus is in town, and so they say, We'll take our friend to go see him. Maybe Jesus will heal him. But they can't get to him because the room is packed. There are too many people there. And so what do they do? They climb up on the roof, remove a section of it, and lower their friend down. And everything stops. Because when someone gets lowered from the ceiling in the middle of a crowded room, that demands attention. I mean, imagine somebody coming down right in the middle here. This all stops until we figure out what's going on here. And so Jesus stops and he looks at this man and he sees a paralyzed man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's a little bit confused because who cares about his sins? He can't walk. He can't move. He can't feed himself. Jesus, that's great. That's really sweet for you to forgive his sins. What about his paralysis? What Jesus has done is meet the man's true and deepest need. It's not necessarily a felt man that this need has, or or a need that his friends can identify, but it is his deepest need for spiritual freedom. And only after that need is met does he grant the man physical freedom from his paralysis. Jesus Christ brings the blessing of freedom from sin. He also brings the blessing of recovering of sight to the blind. Again, we see him doing this literally in his public ministry. He heals tons of people of blindness, But more than that, he does this spiritually. Later on in Luke, he gives the account of Jesus and the disciples approaching Jericho on their way to Jerusalem for Holy Week. And as he approaches the city, a random beggar calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stops the show and interacts with blind Bartimaeus. Why? Blind Bartimaeus, although physically blind, can see the truth about Jesus Christ, that he is the son of David. Anytime Jesus encounters people in the scripture, their eyes are opened to who he is. Think about the woman at the well. Think about the centurion at the cross. Think about Zacchaeus. People around Jesus have their eyes open and they can see who he is. Jesus Christ brings the blessing of eyes to see him. And finally, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Literally, this reads, to send out in forgiveness those who are oppressed. To make them apostles who were oppressed. And we see Jesus doing this, don't we? I mean, he, he takes the disciples, those who are poor, those who are rejected, those who are zealots, those who work for the enemy, and makes them his disciples and sends them out into ministry. Christ brings the blessing of giving the forgiven a purpose, and a mission. So Jesus Christ brings all these expected blessings. Again, this is from Isaiah 61. This is something that the Jews were waiting for. They were expecting at least the physical, but Jesus heightens it by bringing it to a spiritual level as well. He brings the blessings of the gospel to the poor, freedom from sin, eyes to see him, forgiveness, and purpose. This is why he was sent. He says, God has sent me, he has anointed me, and he has sent me to the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. Do these things describe you? Do you see yourself as poor, captive, blind, oppressed? Jesus is saying, this is who I'm sent to. I'm sent to the poor. I'm sent to the blind. I'm sent to the broken. So brothers and sisters, if if you and I can't see those things in ourselves, if we're not willing to humble ourselves to admit that we are poor and in need of his riches, that we are blind and in need of his healing and his wisdom, that we are captive and in need of his forgiveness, why should we expect that Christ would have anything to do with us? This is a hard message for us because we celebrate success and victory and power and wealth and celebrity. We value freedom and autonomy. Not just as a nation that says, yes, we're the land of the free, home of the brave, but on a radical individual level. We want to be free to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, for no other reason other than I just felt like it. Christ is saying here, you are not free. You are captive in your sin. You are not wealthy. You are poor in spirit. Jesus is saying that he has come to those who don't have it all together, who don't put on a face and smile and say, everything's fine, 2016 is going to be great, but he comes to the poor, the captive, the blind. If we don't recognize these qualities in ourselves, we shouldn't presume that Christ came for us. As he himself said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I pray that we would be humble enough to recognize our need of this Jesus. But if these things do describe you, if, you, if, you, if it's not hard for you to see yourself as poor, as captive, as oppressed, as blind, take comfort. 
Christ has come, and in his announcement, he says, I am here for you. So are you captive in sin, making half-hearted resolutions that you know won't make it to February because you've made the same resolution every year? You've tried everything to beat this sin, but you just keep failing? Christ has come to set you free. Do you feel blind, not knowing how to live in the world, not knowing where to go, what to do, where to find hope and joy? Christ has come to give you sight. Are you bored and restless, captive to distraction and comfort, but finding no satisfaction in anything? Christ has come to give you a purpose. And are you poor in spirit? Do you recognize your inability to save yourself through any good works, any good motives, any sincerity, any righteousness of your own? Take comfort. Christ has come to preach the gospel to you. Christ comes expectedly bringing blessings with him. So Christ brings expected blessings and he's able to do that because he's the expected Messiah. Look again at verses 20 and 21. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christ came at a time of great anticipation and deep longing. In the Old Testament, if you read it and don't know anything about Jesus Christ, you're confronted over and over and over with promises. God makes promises that he will send a seed of the woman, Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent. That he will send a child of Abraham, through whom all the nations will be blessed. That he'll send another prophet, like Moses, that will lead his people out of captivity into their true home. A king, like David, a branch from the root of Jesse, who will rule his people in righteousness. A servant of the Lord, a son of man, a mighty warrior, a true shepherd... And as you read the Old Testament, as it goes on and on, you should be overwhelmed with this longing and anticipation. When is he going to get here? Growing up in Charlotte, I always looked forward to Thanksgiving, probably even more than Christmas, because at Thanksgiving, all of our extended family would come to Charlotte, and basically we'd have 25 Mennonites, again, living in one house, eating really good food, and basically playing outside, playing board games, playing video games for 48 hours without sleeping, and then everyone would go home, we'd sleep for a day, and then go back to school on Monday. I really looked forward to this time of year, and the worst was Thursday morning, because they all got there Thursday at noon. So I woke up Thursday expectantly, anticipating a great weekend, and as the, as the morning just crawled by, it's the, when are they going to get here. I'm ready to see my cousins. I'm ready to throw all the acorns that I've been gathering all morning at my Uncle Don. And then one year, my brother goes and gathers a bunch of his own and sneaks it to my Uncle Don, so he gets out of the van and fires at me. When are they going to get here? It's that same anticipation that you have if you travel with children. When are we going to get How many minutes until we get there? We're never going to get to Disney World. I'm going to die in this car before we get to Grandma's house. When are we going to get there? As we read this passage, Christ says, I'm here. I've come. The person you've been waiting for, all the different people maybe that you've been waiting for, 
I'm here. Do you want to know Christ better this year? Read your Old Testament. Yes, read the Gospels. Yes, read other books about Christ. But Christ is announcing his candidacy, giving his opening statement in categories that the Old Testament gives. He's reading from it and says, that's about me. This is who I am. So do you want to understand and know Christ better this year? Don't skip the Old Testament. In these two ways, Christ is an expected Savior. He brings these expected blessings, and he is an expected Messiah. But Christ also says and does some very surprising things in this passage that remind us that he's an unexpected Savior. First of all, he works in unexpected ways. Look again at verses 23 to 27. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Excuse me. What's happening in this passage? First, Jesus anticipates their thoughts. He's just proclaimed, I'm fulfilling this, I'm the Messiah, I'm coming. And he anticipates their objection. Basically, physician, heal yourself, is a way of saying, prove it. Because if, a, if there's this physician, but he's sick all the time, if there's a doctor who just is never well, he's probably not a very good doctor. I mean, the Jews are saying here, okay, Jesus, we hear you, prove it. Because we're not going to take medical advice from someone who's chronically ill. We're not going to take fashion advice from someone who wears sweatpants and their old high school letter jacket all the time. Prove that you're the Messiah. Do some works here that we've heard you have done in other places. But Jesus, he doesn't do it that way. He, he responds in a way that they don't expect. He picks up Elijah and Elisha, two prophets that everybody confuses because honestly there's one letter difference in their name. But he, he tells two stories from these prophets. The first is found in 1 Kings 17. Israel and the surrounding lands are in the midst of a famine. It's a judgment on the wicked kings of Israel. And there are lots of hungry people in times of famine. Specifically, lots of hungry widows, as Jesus mentioned. But Elijah only goes to one, to a foreign widow of Sidon. She's the one that gets the flour that never runs out, the oil that never runs dry, this foreigner. The second story is not that different. Naaman, from 2 Kings 5, is a really, really, really bad dude. He's the king of Syria. Not quite as bad as Assyria, but still really, really bad. I mean, they're the enemies of the Jewish people. He's mighty, he's shrewd, but he's a leper. He's sick. And in his palace one day, this little Jewish girl learns of his leprosy. And this little Jewish girl is there because of a raid that Naaman ordered. So she's in captivity because of him, She hears of his leprosy and says, he needs to go talk to Elisha. I mean, it's an easy solution. Go talk to this prophet. He knows God. He can heal him of his leprosy. 
And so he does. He seeks out Elisha and he's healed. What's the point? Of all the lepers in the ancient Near East, Israel and outside, only Naaman, a foreign king, an enemy of the Jews, is cured. Jesus is saying, yes, I am expected. I am the Messiah. I am bringing these blessings, but I am bringing them to your enemies. I am bringing things that you want and giving them to others, even to the Romans who are ruling over the Jews at this time, even to the Samaritans, those half-breeds in the Jews' opinion, who mingled with foreign nations during the exiles. Their level of frustration is really... It can be difficult for us to understand. I mean, imagine that you've put all of your hopes and dreams in a certain figure who's going to come. When they come to power, everything wrong with your life, with your situation, is going to be reversed. You'll be the one in power now. Those oppressive rulers will be put in their place, and all will be well. Some of you actually have this kind of hope in a presidential candidate. Maybe you're waiting for them to come into power so that they can undo everything you hate about the current administration. But just imagine that that person you're putting your hope in gets elected and you're celebrating and you wake up the day after their inauguration and you're expectant. But instead of repealing Obamacare and Common Core and everything else about the administration that you hate, they make them stronger. They strengthen and perpetuate and extend and enforce what you wanted them to slash and cut and repeal. How angry would you be? That's how the Jews felt in this situation. That's why they want to throw Jesus off of a cliff. They're saying, if you're this kind of Messiah, we don't want you. Forget impeachment. We're not just going to politely remove you from office. We're going to take you up the hill and throw you back down. What's the point here? Jesus Christ is going to frustrate you. He's going to do things that are unexpected. He's going to work in ways that you don't like. But if you want a relationship with Christ, he has to be able to frustrate you. It's impossible to have a real relationship with someone who only does what you say, who only agrees with you, who does things exactly the way you want them done. That's a robot. That's Siri. You don't have a relationship with Siri. If you want a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to disagree with him and to let him say things that you don't want to hear. So here's a check for those of us who are believers this morning. When was the last time that Jesus frustrated you? When was the last time you read in the Bible something that made you angry, that you wish wasn't there, that you that you just kind of recoiled at or pointed out something in your life that you said, no, I'm actually okay with that being in my life? Have you ever disagreed with Christ? And if it's been a while, why? Are you ignoring part of the teaching of the Bible? Are you suppressing certain aspects of the person and work of Christ? If so, we're trying to relate to a caricature, to a cartoon character. Or on the other hand, we might be the one who's caricatured. We might be the one holding back in our relationship, refusing to bring part of our lives into relationship with Christ because we know he's going to get in there and make a mess of things. When was the last time Jesus Christ upset you? 
offended your pride, said something you didn't want to hear. If you're not a believer today, oh, by the way, when Jesus upsets us, when we're offended, he's not the problem. It's us. We have something that we need to get back in line. We have something we need to bring to him. Again, if you're not a believer today, but investigating Christianity, considering the claims of Christ, I want you to hear this. Expect to be offended. Expect to be frustrated at some of the things that Jesus says. But don't let that drive you away. Enter in. Give him a hearing. Listen to what he says. Be open to the possibility that just like in any relationship, you might be wrong and the other person might be right. The fact that you disagree with Jesus is proof that you're interacting with a person. It's not a system, it's a person. Give him a hearing. The good thing about this is when Christ frustrates us, it's for our good. He doesn't do it like a 13 or 14-year-old adolescent does just because he gets a kick out of frustrating people. No, he does it for our good. C.S. Lewis illustrates this well in Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew these things needed doing, so you're not surprised. But after a while, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus Christ is a savior who works in unexpected ways. Ways that at times frustrate us. But those ways are for our good. The most unexpected way that Christ works is through his unexpected grace. And this will be our last point this morning. Look back at verse 19. Christ is finishing up his reading and he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I'm telling you this is an example of Christ's unexpected grace. How am I getting that? I've mentioned several times that this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 61. And Jesus here actually, he breaks the first rule of biblical interpretation. The first rule is don't stop mid-sentence. But that's exactly what Jesus has done, quoting the Old Testament. Here's the, fir- the verse in full. Isaiah 61 verse 2 says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, really good news, and the day of vengeance of our God. This is an example of the day of the Lord a day the prophets spoke of where two things would happen. The righteous would be vindicated. They would be relieved finally. They would be honored and made more glorious. But the wicked would be destroyed. So blessing and restoration for the righteousness, judgment and death and destruction for the wicked. What the prophets couldn't see was that there was time between these two things. This day would span for thousands of years. Jesus' declaration of the year of the Lord's favor without the day of vengeance is completely unexpected. That's why Luke tells us that they marveled at the gracious words that came from him. The grace 
and patience and forgiveness of God in the person of Jesus Christ is totally unexpected. But how? How is he able to do this? How is God able to extend forgiveness yet withhold judgment? Because when you extend forgiveness to the righteous, it's not as if their sin just kind of floats away. Wickedness must be dealt with. Christ knows as he's reading this passage that the only way that you and I get to experience the year of the Lord's favor is if he endures the day of vengeance of our God. Christ does not overlook our sin. He takes it upon himself. You and I can enjoy the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, of feasting and celebration and prosperity and hope and life because he endured the day of vengeance of our God. This is what's most unexpected about Jesus. He dies. I mean, he says, I'm expected. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I'm the victor. I'm the Davidic king, the branch from the stump of Jesse, Abraham's son, the serpent crusher. He's not supposed to die. But that death is not a defeat. It's ultimate victory. This is Christ's opening statement. I am coming to die that you might live. I am coming to experience the wrath of God that you might be brought in to his joy. I am coming, giving you gifts that you might be brought back to me. How are we going to respond to this Jesus this year? Luke gives us two options in this passage and from the same group of people. Are we going to respond like the group does at the end? Angry, rejecting his rule, wanting our Savior the way we want him? He gives us that option. My prayer is that we respond in joy like the crowd does initially, that we marvel at his gracious words and that we, lost in wonder, love, and praise at this Jesus who would take the wrath of God on himself that we might experience God's blessings, that we might look at him and humbly rejoice. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ for his work on the cross on our behalf, for for the blessings that he brings requiring nothing from us. Father, for his grace, for his favor, for his generosity, for coming and pouring himself out that we might be filled, for coming, making himself poor that we might be rich, for coming, Father, to rescue us. Help us this year to respond in joy. We ask these things in his name. Amen.